This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Um, another seminar, seminar number four. Sorry for getting started a few minutes late, but you know this interaction. We didn't. It's been difficult to have time for questions. There's so much material, but I'm determined that we will have time for questions. And uh, John Baxter had some questions also. We, uh, John, don't just you know raise them. If and if others, you know, if you come to, a, I come to a point that um, you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'll try to recognize you. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll have some time uh, at the end. I didn't quite finish seminar number three, The Cross in Leadership, and so I'd like to just finish that off and uh, just very quickly as, you know, kind of a, you know, a synopsis in seconds of what I spent almost an hour covering in Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus is called apostle and high priest. He is the apostle in the sense that he was sent from the Father. And as he was sent, he established, ordained 12 apostles and sent them out on a mission. And there are specific leadership principles that we looked at, that even Jesus himself was not self-appointed, that it was the Father who appointed him and sent him. He was not self-sent. It was also, um, he does not bear witness of himself, but the Father, the scriptures, John the Baptist, and the works themselves that he did bore witness that he was who he said he was, um, come from God. And we looked at some principles of leadership um, also in connection with uh, the Old Testament and um, challenge to the leadership of Moses and Aaron and how God dealt with that. And that um, we can learn from those lessons. As we've seen in previous seminars as well, that God has written the, this history so that we might learn from it, despite the fact that it's unusual for that to happen. Uh, we can and we should. We must, really. Um, it's very important. But before we begin again, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus for all that he means to us, all he has done for us. And as we open your word again, we ask for your guidance and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, point three, how is the gift of leadership recognized? Just by way of summary again, Jesus of the 12, he prayed all night for guidance and ordained them. Replacement for Judas, they prayed, they cast lots, and they ordained a, a replacement for, as the 12th apostle, the seventh, seven deacons, as they're known, um, selected by the church. They prayed uh, and were ordained. Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, uh, through the gift of prophecy, fasting, and prayer were ordained. And Timothy was, through the gift of prophecy, ordained also by the hands of Paul and the elders, Paul says. So, in other words, the principle is from these examples, a divine indication is needed that someone is called to leadership position. Maybe that also, to some extent, answers the question you had. The, uh, 
We see that in terms of prophecy and seeking God's clear will through prayer and sometimes fasting. God calls the person and will make that clear if we seek his will. How do we know God's will? Through the scriptures and God's providential working. Uh, we're told in 1 Timothy 5.22 not to lay hands on anyone suddenly or hastily. Um, we must beware of those who claim to be called by God but do not submit to his word. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 15 uh, talks about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Of course, they're not anything like that, whose end will be according to their works. So the deceptions then would persist and uh, we're warned uh, against them. Jesus said that uh, if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. So we know them uh, by their fruit and by the scriptures, by providential workings. Number four, um, we should look at uh, issues of power and control. It's human nature to want to be in control, but spiritual power and control is not centered in us or even in the church. Christ surrendered control of his life completely to the Father, to the one who sent him. If we're followers of Christ, actually we're not in control. Even church leaders are not really in control. God's in control. This is the safest position of all because God knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. It's his church. It's not our church or your church or my church. It doesn't belong to us. God raised it up. He is its head, and he will see it through. I like this statement found in the seventh volume of the Bible commentary, page 956. Christ is in the middle of the seven golden candlesticks, walking from church to church, from congregation to congregation, from heart to heart. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. If the candlesticks were left to the care of human beings, how often the light would flicker and go out. But God has not given his church into the hands of men. Christ the one who gave his life for the world, that all who believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life, is the watchman of the house. He is the warder, faithful and true, of the temple courts of the Lord. So, um, as we saw in seminar one and also in seminar, uh, uh, this last seminar, uh, it was Jesus' surrender of control to his father that led him to the cross. He did not want to go there, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured it. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Uh, let's skip to the conclusion of seminar number three, because we didn't have time to finish it. Um, I, you get a little bonus here. Jesus, as apostle and high priest, illustrates in his own life what true spiritual leadership in the church involves. Spiritual leadership is based on the qualifications that God has set forth in his word. And all spiritual leadership is based not on natural gifts and talents or even educational qualifications, as important as these are, but on the gifts given by the Holy Spirit. For the bottom line is that leadership in the church is based on self-sacrificial service. 
Service to God and man, not on self-seeking or striving for position. Five, having the mind and attitude of Christ, who though equal with God, humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross, is the attitude that all will have who are called by God to serve his church. It is this attitude that connects us with God and enables us to be his hands and feet in the world and to go where he sends us. So that um, concludes seminar number three. Uh, we will go to seminar number four, stumbling or standing at the cross, and look at Hebrews 7 and 8. But before we do that, I just want to give the opportunity. We've covered a lot of material, the first you know, six chapters of the book of Hebrews, basically. And if any, there are any questions, now is the time to raise them. Maybe you've had some questions before. Uh, you know, there were things that I didn't make so clear. If, you've, if you don't have any questions, we can move straight on to this, but I, I want to give that opportunity because I've wanted and wanted and haven't had a chance. I love the opportunity to ask, hear questions asked and to answer them. Okay, well, I, I will take the silence to mean you wanted to come to this seminar number four, Stumbling or Standing at the Cross, so let's move on. I think with this topic, we need to put ourselves in Israel's place. Actually, we've had to do that already quite a bit in this seminar, to think about what it must have been like. It's much easier for us from our standpoint looking back to believe in Jesus because we have the witness of the entire New Testament. We see the significance of the torn veil in the temple. We see the prophecy of Jesus about Jerusalem's destruction that was fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome invaded and destroyed the temple and the city. But remember that even at the time Hebrews was written, I believe it was written by Paul, too many correspondences uh, between his other writings and this one to think of another author. Really, there's no good candidate anyway. So uh, Paul is the logical option for authorship. Even at the time this was written, probably in the 60s, mid-60s, maybe just before Paul was killed, uh, martyred in Rome, the temple was standing even more glorious than in the, same, in the time of Jesus. As the sons of Herod the Great continued Herod's building plans on the temple, and uh, ironically, the temple was only completed very, very shortly before it was soundly destroyed by Rome. Just a year or two before it was destroyed, it was, they finished construction. So that's an interesting factoid. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, we read, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one also, speaking of Jesus, have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Again, another example that the temple seems to still be in, in use. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were offered in accordance with the laws of Moses. 
This was the great argument the Jews had against Christianity. The Israelites thought they were fulfilling God's law. After all, hadn't he told them to offer these sacrifices? Weren't the priests instituted by God himself through Moses? That is why Stephen was rejected. In Acts 6 and 7, we read, uh, Acts 6, 11 to 14, that he was speaking against Moses, against God, against this holy place and the law, and that Jesus, he said, would change the customs which Moses delivered to us according to his false accusers. The book of Hebrews shows several things. One, yes, things have changed. Jesus is high priest in the sanctuary in heaven, the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Yes, the earthly sanctuary is just a shadow. The temple where sacrifices are being offered at the time uh, it was written is now meaningless and the sacrifices themselves meaningless because Jesus offered himself on the cross as the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. But how do we know that? How do we know that? It seemed that Israel was doing what God had told them according to the scriptures. And yet, Hebrews says we know that based on the scriptures, on what God had already said would happen. We saw that constantly in connection with Jesus also in the last uh, um, seminar, number three, about him as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, it was based on the scriptures that God had already said this would happen. We don't simply accept a claim because it makes sense. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, just reviewing what we said, saw before, surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing. But he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. As we saw, even Jesus himself did not ask the Jews to believe in him based on his own claim. He pointed them to the fourfold witness. One, the testimony of John the Baptist. Two, the miracles he did by God's power. Three, the voice of the Father at his baptism. And most important of all, saving the strongest reason for last, the Holy Scriptures. They are they which testify of me. So Jesus himself emphasized that his messianic ministry was confirmed by God. In a similar way, Hebrews emphasizes that these changes in Jesus' ministry, that the, uh, sorry, the high priestly ministry, the changes from Levitical high priest to Jesus' priesthood, uh, was according to what God said would already happen in the Old Testament scriptures. In chapter 7, we see a change of priestly ministry, the end of the Aaronic priesthood and the beginning of a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And chapter 8 describes the heavenly sanctuary in contrast to the earthly sanctuary. In both cases, Paul makes it clear that none of this would be or should be surprising. God had already indicated that this would happen in his word. So, uh, in looking at two Bible texts given already in the last seminar, Hebrews 5, verse 5, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, quoting Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. In the context of Psalm 2, Israel's king is called God's son, but under inspiration, David is writing in such a way that it becomes clear he's speaking of the ultimate king, the ultimate son, uh, messianic king, Jesus. 
We see that if we would look carefully at especially verses 8 through 12, where it talks about uh, blessed are those who trust in him. It's a phrase that's only used of God. And it's used over and over in the Psalms of God. And yet here it's applied to the Messianic King, uh, the Son who would come. Hebrews 5 verse 6, he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we could um, notice also, of course, which was quoted earlier in Psalm 110 verse 1, where God says, the Lord, or David's writing says, the Lord said, or Yahweh said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. So God the Father is speaking to God the Son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, this second passage, Psalm 110, is dwelt on at length, showing what it means that Jesus was appointed by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, showing also how this royal priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood according to Aaron. Notice um, the comparison that is made between Melchizedek and his history we can read in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. This is the passage that seems to be um, dealt with here in Hebrews 7. And with Jesus Christ, um, Psalm 110, of course, as well as Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 6. Melchizedek is called the king of Salem, which uh, the word Salem uh, or Shalom in Hebrew means peace. Jesus was called the prince of peace in Isaiah 9, you might recall, verse 6 and 7, because he had not yet come as a son of Adam and won the world back yet through his victorious life and death on the cross. Satan still claimed the world as his, Luke 4, verse 6, but Jesus didn't accept him as king of this world. Thus he referred to the devil only as the prince or temporary ruler of this world, John 12, verse 31. Jesus was really the true king of peace, prince of peace. Um, then number two, uh, the Melchizedek was the priest of the most high God, and Jesus is called a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The fact is that Melchizedek was both king and priest, and in fact, um, Melchizedek itself, the name means king of righteousness. Um, he is a uh, son of, he uh, doesn't have father or mother, uh, no genealogy according to what we can find. Um, Jesus, like Jesus himself, um, who's really without beginning, without ending. But Jesus' human descent is through Judah, not through Levi. Coming just to come back to the number three, the point three about Jesus being the king of righteousness. Psalm 72 um, deals with that. And you will recall that Jesus um, was qualified to be king because he came from Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10 refers to the scepter that would come through Judah. And um, David, of course, too, uh, being from the tribe of Judah. And Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, uh, speaks of the coming Davidic king as a king of righteousness. 
The silence of scripture can teach us meaningful things. Even when the scripture doesn't speak, sometimes it speaks. And this is the case where in the connection with Melchizedek, we don't know who his father or mother was. Doesn't mean he didn't have one, obviously. He had one, but um, we don't know who it was. And so the silence of scripture is significant. There's no genealogy that establishes Melchizedek as priest. Um, he didn't have to be established as priest according to his physical genealogy or physical descent. This is what differentiates the priesthood of Melchizedek from the Levitical priesthood, which of course, all those priests had to be sons of Aaron and they had to be able to prove their genealog genealogical uh, heritage back to Aaron. This is why the genealogies were so important to be maintained. Uh, question. Uh, there's evidence against it, and I'll come to it in just a moment. Um, so uh, the Levitical priesthood was based on physical descent, but Melchizedek priesthood did not need that for its uh, descent. This is the key point. And then Melchizedek is without beginning or end, neither beginning of days nor end of life. Well, at least as far as scripture is concerned, because he kind of appears and then he's gone. We don't see anything of him before or after. There's a great silence. But again, here the silence of scripture speaks to us. According to Paul, um, the fact that there is no mention of where he came from or when he died points forward to Jesus, who has no beginning and no end and who thus has the power of an endless life, unlike the Levitical priests who died and whose authority had to be passed on to their descendants. Hebrews 7, verse 16. Melchizedek represented Jesus on earth, but he was not himself Jesus. Ellen White writes in letter 190, uh, 1905, which is published in the first volume of the Bible Commentary, page 1092, paragraph eight, God has never left himself without witness on the earth. At one time, Melchizedek represented the Lord Jesus Christ in person to reveal the truth of heaven and perpetuate the law of God. And then in the handout um, that I gave in earlier seminars, um, you'll notice um, this is the one from Review and Herald, February 18, 1890. Um, Paragraph 10, right at the top of page two. It was Christ that spoke through Melchizedek, the priest of the most high God. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he was the voice of God in the world, the representative of the father. And all through the generations of the past, Christ has spoken. <clears throat> Christ has led his people and has been the light of the world. So. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he was the representative of Christ of the, and also of the Father um, and typified the coming of Jesus as um, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek priesthood is better, according to Paul, than the Levitical priesthood for a number of reasons. And again, he bases this on scripture. Um, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek and his priesthood 
is greater than Abraham. And of course, Abraham was the uh, ancestor of, of uh, the Levitical priests, uh, Levi and, and the Levitical priests. And so, therefore, if Abraham had to pay tithes to Melchizedek, then uh, his priesthood must be greater than the descendants, the Levitical descendants' priesthood, uh, because uh, he's greater than Abraham. Therefore, he's also greater than Abraham's great-grandson, Levi, who was the great-grandfather of Aaron, the father of all subsequent priests. Not only did Abraham pay tithe to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Hebrews 7, verse 7 says, on this basis, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the greater or the better. And so... Uh, again, it's a witness that because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he must be greater than him and great, his priesthood greater than that of Levitical priests. So to summarize key points, the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Levi. And since Jesus has been appointed by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood supersedes the priesthood of Aaron. But now comes the zinger. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, notice what it says. That for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. Yeah. <laughs> change of the law. How can that be? Um, well, this is, this is a, a question that you might wonder. You know, can the law be changed? I thought that the law of God is not changeable. It's as eternal as God himself. Well, it's important to recognize in the Bible that there are various kinds of laws. And in the Old Testament, um, I think it's important to notice the, the differentiation. Even in the New Testament, we have uh, differences that are mentioned. Um, although some people overly influenced by Jewish scholars, like to call the law in the New Testament the Torah, as if they, whenever the law is mentioned in the New Testament, refers to all five books of Moses in their entirety. There are several good reasons to question whether this is really right. First, for Jews, the whole Torah is binding. So does that mean that we have to keep all 613 laws of the Old Testament as the Jews classified them, all the laws of Moses. This was, of course, a discussion in the early church in Acts 15 and in Galatians. We read about that. When Paul quotes portions of the law, though, when he quotes portions of the law, it's interesting to notice that he always quotes from a specific part of the law, namely, the Ten Commandments. He never quotes any other law in the Old Testament as a basis uh, and calls it law. He, um, he quotes it as scripture, as, you know, it is written, but not as a law that we must keep. The only exception to that is like here, where he's discussing the difference between the Old and New Covenants. You're saying that when he quotes something other than something from the 
And um, when he quotes the law, it's always the Ten Commandments that he quotes when he's, set, he's quoting a specific law. And uh, however, when Paul quotes from the books of Moses, he calls it scripture. Except when he's talking about the difference between the Old and New Covenants as here. So why is there a change in the law? Well, it is not a change, of course, in the moral law of Ten Commandments that's eternal. They don't change. But a change in the ceremonial law of the Bible. Jesus' life is so much greater than that of earthly priests because their priesthood was according to a fleshly commandment, Paul says. That, that is, it was based on their physical descent <clears throat> from Aaron. While Christ's high priesthood was based on the power of an endless life. Hebrews 7.16. And as Hebrews points out, the law is dealing with the sanctuary and its sacrifices are only a shadow pointing forward to something greater to come. Well, let's look in more detail at the ceremonial law and its fulfillment. In what way were the laws of Moses only a shadow? I think as we all know, the sacrifices symbolized and pointing forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross the earthly sanctuary itself, as we read in Hebrews 8, uh, verse 5, uh, and verse 1 and 2, uh, were patterned after the heavenly original. And we'll talk more about that in our next seminar, number 5, tomorrow morning. With Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the reality to which all the sacrifices of the old covenant pointed was fulfilled. Hebrews 8 Verses 6 and 13 say, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. In that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And if we would read the intervening verses, by the way, he is a very lengthy quotation that is given from Jeremiah chapter 31 the, about the covenant, the old and new covenant. The new covenant being one that God would write in our hearts. He said, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Verse 10, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And the problem with the old covenant, it says, was that it was not kept. Uh, verse um, 9, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. So the problem with the old covenant was that it was imperfect, it was temporary, and it wasn't even very well kept by Israel. More than this, even the Jewish festivals themselves, uh, like the sacrifices, which pointed forward to Jesus and his sacrifice, the festivals of the Old Testament were prophetic, pointing forward. Israel tended to look back at them, at, at these festivals, as marking significant points in their history. For example, the Passover, they looked back at as, uh, you know, uh, commemorating their deliverance from Egypt. And, you know, when they... Uh, the, their forefathers painted uh, the doorposts and lintel of the, uh, over their doors in Egypt with the blood of the paschal lamb 
uh, as a protection for their firstborn during the tenth and final plague on, uh, of Egypt. So um, they tended to look back, uh, have the festivals as pointing backward, looking at their history. But God intended them also to see a deeper prophetic significance in these festivals. In reality, the spring festival pointed to events surrounding the first advent of Christ, while the fall festivals pointed to events surrounding the second advent. And so we could look then at the spring festivals, those that uh, were connected with Christ's first advent. The Passover, uh, as we read in Leviticus 23.5, which describes the Passover, um, we see that this, according to the New Testament, pointed to the death of Christ, who offered himself at the time of the Paschal sacrifice, Passover sacrifice. This is made clear, very clear in John chapter 19, as well as in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, where Paul says, Christ, our Passover or Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. So the Passover pointed forward to the, the time of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which was in fact at the time the Passover lamb was killed. So it perfectly fulfilled in a literal way at the time of the sacrifice of Christ was at the time of Passover, showing the, the coincidence showing, not that it was a coincidence, but the co coinciding time showing that it was uh, a fulfillment of this prophetic type or symbol. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's described in Leviticus 23, 6 to 8, pointed to the new covenant and the change it makes in our lives. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, refers to this. He says, uh, purge out the old leaven, verse 7, that you may be a new lump, even as Christ, as, even as you're unleavened. And then verse 8, let us uh, keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the, this festival points forward to the new covenant and the uh, difference, the, the change, the newness of our lives with Christ. Likewise, the first fruits described in Leviticus 23, 9 to 14, pointed to Christ and those resurrected and ascended with him to heaven as the beginning of the gospel harvest. <clears throat> and finally, Pentecost, Leviticus 23, 15 to 21, pointed to the initial harvest in gathering of the early church. And of course, uh, as we know in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out, in fact, on the very day of Pentecost as uh, the beginning of this wonderful harvest in gathering. Now turning to the festivals of the autumn or fall festivals, the blowing of trumpets, Leviticus 23, 23 to 25, pointed to the great second advent movement, announcing the second coming of Christ and the impending judgment, Revelation chapter 10. The day of atonement, Leviticus 23, 26 to 32, pointed to the judgment phase of Christ's ministry in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, beginning in 1844, and Daniel 8, we had a quarterly, Sabbath school quarterly not long ago, dealing with that very well about the Day of Atonement imagery represented 
in Daniel 8, 14, and Revelation 14, 6, and 7, referring to the hour of God's judgment beginning. Uh, then in finally the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, 33 to 36, pointing to the putting on the heavenly tabernacle that we will have at Christ's second advent. And Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 4. So the festivals of the spring and autumn or fall uh, were really prophetic of what God would do through Christ at his first advent and in connection with his second advent. Just let me come to the conclusion and then we'll have some time for questions. Just as Jesus' messianic mission was foretold in prophecy, so was his high priestly ministry according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. Number two, we need to recognize that the ceremonial laws connected with the earthly sanctuary are fulfilled in Christ through his death on the cross and through his post-resurrection ministry, both on earth and in heaven. And three, the primary purpose of the Jewish festivals, like the sacrifices that were offered on these days, is prophetic of significant actions of Jesus in connection with his first advent and second advent. So, um, that kind of wraps up this seminar. We'll look in seminar number five at the connection, how the cross connects earth and heaven, and in particular, Hebrews 9 and 10, which have been very controversial chapters in um, our recent history. Actually, I was a student at the time at Pacific Union College when one of the professors there um, called it into question. And... Um, I think there's some very important issues there that we need to look at in order to understand clearly why we believe what we believe about the sanctuary and judgment and Christ's ministry there in heaven. So um, now it's time for questions. We have a few minutes. Finally, I was able to finish in such a way that provide for some questions. Are there any questions over either seminar three or seminar number four or actually any of the seminars that we've covered up to this point? Now that we're kind of two-thirds of the way through. John. One slide back to the fall festivals. Well, Revelation 10 is in connection with the blowing of trumpets in the book of Revelation. And so it is connected, but it's connected in particular you know, because uh, the blowing of trumpets in Leviticus 23 and, and historically in uh, Israel's experience in history was as a call for people to prepare for the Day of Atonement, that the Day of Atonement was coming. This was the first day of the seventh month and the Day of Atonement would be on the 10th day of the seventh month. So there was a period of preparation that they were to uh, have and uh, to get ready. And so it was kind of a warning that the judgment and the Day of Atonement is coming. It was looked upon throughout um, uh, Jewish history as a time of judgment, time of introspection and examining oneself. As, as it says in Leviticus 23, they were to afflict their souls and to, to it was really the only, uh, apparently the only fast day that is specifically commanded in the Old Testament as a day of fasting is the Day of Atonement 
in order that we might um, uh, examine our, our lives as, uh, before God. So therefore, the, uh, in a similar way, the Second Advent uh, proclamation of Millerite movement was a call for people to prepare for judgment. Now, of course, there was a little bit of, uh, not unlike, actually, the confusion of John the Baptist. If you recall, he said that Jesus would come and he would, you know, with fire burn up the chaff and so on. And he, he didn't exactly understand the difference totally between Jesus' first and second advent either. And even he sent his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the, you know, after he was imprisoned by Herod, he was, are you the one to come or do we look for another? And so similarly, you know, there was a little bit of um, confusion as they were searching the prophecies and, uh, between the beginning of the judgment and Christ's second coming. Um, they thought the cleanse the earth was the cleansing the sanctuary and, uh, by fire. And this was not correct that there was a beginning work of judgment preceding Christ's second advent. And that's something that we will deal with more in the next seminar, seminar number five. Well, yes, yes, they do. Um, while we, this isn't really a seminar in Revelation, just very briefly, I can say that the uh, trumpets that are given, the seven trumpets in Revelation, are warnings and um, indicate God's judgment on on um, His people who are are not uh, doing according as they should, and the world in general, and that um, through these judgments, He's calling people to him uh, in repentance, to repent and to turn to him. And so it's, it's kind of a warning and a call at the same time, as well as uh, judgments that prefigure future judgments that will take place in the plagues. There's a distinction in the book of Revelation between the first half of the book, which is basically historical, and the second half, which is eschatological. It deals with the end time. And so right in the middle, you have these chapters. Uh, well, 10 uh, is part of this historical period, and which can, is connected with the Millerite movement. But beginning with chapter 12 and 13 and 14, which is kind of a, uh, the apex of the book of Revelation. It's the high point which, which the first part of the book points forward to and the second part of the book points backward to. You know, you have this key uh, contrast between the woman clothed with the sun on the one hand and the remnant that rises as uh, the remnant of her seed who arise to proclaim the three angels' messages and you have the mark of the beast that is uh, 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 given to those who uh, are not who've not received the seal of God. And so this, this kind of this is the dividing line in the book of Revelation. So the judgments in the, uh, kind of look forward to that last period that's introduced in Revelation already in Revelation 10, but expanded upon in Revelation 12 to 14. There's a question back here. Aaron, and then in front. Shem. Well, uh, you know, I, I would guess that uh, he um, 
probably was an ancestor of Melchizedek. I don't know exactly. Uh, I would guess that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the godly line of Shem, that, that this, uh, but, you know, all the patriarchs, including Shem, would have been offering sacrifice in a sense, whether, I guess you could say maybe it was according to the, the Melchizedek, but not in the same sense as um, Jesus and our high priesthood today. It was more in terms of each family head offering sacrifice and being a spiritual leader. Um, it was not according to descent, obviously, but uh, it was, so it was in that sense like Melchizedek. But unlike Melchizedek, it, Melchizedek points forward really to the New Testament time. We don't. Yes, yes. He was not Jesus. We know that. He was a human being. He, he did have a beginning and end, but in Scripture, we don't see that. And so even that silence is, is valuable. Thanks for the question. Yes, a question here. Um, I think in Hebrew thought there was a significant difference between a high priest and a common priest. Mm-hmm. And all the references to Melchizedek does not ascribe him to the position of high priest, but simply as a priest. Priest of the Most High God. Well, the fact is that um, there's only one priest in the New Testament, and that's Jesus. And so um, he is, uh, by default, the high priest. Um, But it is according to the order of Melchizedek because of the reasons we've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yet uh, the... the, um, Sanctuary on earth was kind of a mirror of the sanctuary in heaven. And so there is that connection between Jesus as high priest uh, following along in, in a sense as high, the high priest on earth. Kind of we can look at the ministry of the high priest and learn about Jesus' priesthood in heaven. Well, um, thank you so much for your attention. I'm glad we had finally some time for questions. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow where we'll look at Hebrews 9 and 10 and delve into more detail about what this ministry of Jesus is in heaven and more importantly, how it affects us on earth. I think it'll be hopefully very practical, not just theoretical about what he's doing in heaven, but there's a close connection between earth and heaven that I hope we'll see. Thanks again. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.